we've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, they welcome the return of nationally recognized professional coder and auditor Terry Fletcher to talk about the big surprise. Susan Gatehouse will explain why it's time to hit the reset button. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson is monitoring the coordination and maintenance committee meeting that started minutes ago. And Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor and the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 452nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by the ICD University Bookstore. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Big news day today. We have the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting taking place at this very hour at CMS headquarters. That's right. The Tuesday meeting is underway now and continues tomorrow. I can't wait for tomorrow. Lori Johnson is zooming in now, and I will tomorrow as well. Very good. Lori's going to join us in a couple of minutes with a live update, and then she's going to circle back at the end of the broadcast with an update and a preview of tomorrow's meeting. And Susan Gatehouse will be here shortly. She'll report why it's important to hit the reset button on revenue integrity. Yep, money's always a good topic. No surprise here. Uh, But speaking of surprises, Terry Fletcher returns to report on the No Surprises Act passed by Congress at the end of the year. And you have a talk back. What are you going to be talking about this morning? I'm going to be talking about the new COVID-19 term PASC. PASC. Good. Very good. Looking forward to hearing that, as always. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And you can call it business intelligence or you can call it common sense. As Medicare pays fee-for-service claims through its Medicare Administrative Contractors, or MACs, it compiles reports of paid claims by provider. CMS knows by provider the number of claims paid and the HCPCS codes that were paid on the claims. They have the data to determine how many physicians bill all of their claims with the highest possible codes for evaluation and management services. They have data by provider of the total number of claims paid. Medicare Advantage plans regularly submit paid claims data to CMS in determining the risk adjustment score of Medicare Advantage plans. CMS uses this data to adjust payments to the plans. My question is, why doesn't CMS use business intelligence to catch fraud and abuse before it turns into massive cases of fraud and abuse? CMS has the data to see spikes in payments in individual providers. It begs the question, how do bad actors submit claims for months or years that should have been caught in the first month? Years ago, almost all of the physicians in the top 20 Medicare payments were ophthalmologists. It turned out that Medicare was paying very high rates for interocular lenses. A number of these physicians were eventually charged with fraud. Just a few years later, in 2019, a New York ophthalmologist was in the news when he was convicted of Medicare fraud for billing millions of dollars in operations that were never performed over a 10-year period. And my question is, why is it that this fraud can't be investigated in real time based on trending data? Why can't Medicare use data analytics and business intelligence to find anomalous payment data and investigate early? And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's March 9th. Today, the death toll from the deadly coronavirus now stands at more than 525,000. You're listening to Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Acute heart failure poses serious coding and CDI challenges. Fortunately, two webcasts from ICD-10 Monitor and Rack Monitor deliver essential knowledge leading to stronger documentation to support your ICD-10-CM coding for acute heart failure. You'll also learn effective strategies for appealing claim denials. Register now for this two-part series from Rack Monitor and ICD-10 Monitor. Acute Heart Failure, Coding, CDI, and Appeal Strategies. Part one of this special series is now available on demand. Part 2 is coming March 17th. Purchase the combo and save 10%. Register now for this unique two-part webcast presentation. Here now with a live report on the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting taking place at this very hour is Lori Johnson. Lori also has to talk to Tuesday listeners. Surveying, good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and welcome to our listeners. This morning kicked off the March 2021 Coordination maintenance committee meeting. Today's meeting is focused on procedures. The information for watching or listening is available on the current slide. The agendas are available under event resources. Remember, if you want to comment, you must join the meeting through Zoom. One important item to remember as the procedure presentations are viewed is that some of the proposals have requested a new technology add-on payment. One requirement of NTAP is that they have a unique procedure code. CMS has reported that there has been an increased level of NTAP requests. There are six proposals that have been published but will not be presented and have requested an NTAP status as well. This morning's meeting began with an introduction and then the first proposal is administration of OTL-103, which is an ex vivo autologous hemopoietic stem cell gene therapy. This therapy has been used to treat Wiskoff-Aldrich syndrome, which is known as WAS. The characteristics of WAS is recurrent life-threatening infections, eczema, and thrombocytopenia. People with WAS are at greater risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis, vasculitis, or hemolytic anemia. Note that NTAP was not been requested for OTL-103. It is an investigational therapy, and it requires three weeks prior to treatment and four to eight weeks treatment and recovery. Uh, there were questions raised about the root operation um, that has been proposed for this procedure code, transfusion versus introduction. The next topic is OTL-200, which is an ex vivo infusion containing autologous CD34 plus cell-enriched product that contains hemopoietic cell and progenitor cells, which is used to treat late juvenile metachromatic leukodystrophy, or MLD. This infusion has been approved in Europe. Comments are due by April 9, 2021 for the procedure codes with final codes to be available in the May-June 2021 timeframe. 
the final codes will become effective October 1st, 2021, or fiscal year 22. Let's go to the listener survey now. In thinking about the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, what part of the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting is the most important to you? The answers are A, diagnosis, B, procedure, or C, neither. I will be back later to review your responses. Erica, do you have a favorite part of the CNM meeting? Oh, Lori, you know I do. I really like doing the ICD-10 CM codes. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is the Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC, and she'll be back with the answers at the end of the program. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Lori Johnson. And as Lori said, we're going to have the results of the Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey later in this broadcast. With so many complaints by patients over their medical bills, it's no surprise that Congress acted to try to fix this problem. So here now with a report on how you should prepare for this new legislation is nationally recognized professional coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher, and good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. So new legislation was signed into law in the closing days of 2020 called the No Surprises Act. Today, I wanted to clarify to providers and hospital facilities what this actually means and who it applies to because we don't want providers to get a surprise of their own if you're not prepared. This new law, set to take effect on January 1st, 2022, will apply to nearly all health plans years beginning on or after January 1st, 2022. First, the Act requires insurers offering plans that cover emergency services to bill plan holders no more than the median in-network rate for a particular emergency service, even if the service provider is out of network. It further prohibits insurers from billing plan holders more than the median in-network rate for non-emergency services provided by out-of-network providers at an in-network facility. Patients who see an out-of-network provider will not be responsible for cost sharing other than what they would have paid to an in-network provider. Equally important, providers will be barred from holding patients liable for higher amounts. Surprise bills typically arise in emergencies when patients have little or no say in where they receive care. They also arise in non-emergencies when patients at in-network hospitals or other facilities receive care from ancillary providers, such as anesthesiologists, who are not in-network and whom the patient did not choose. A health plan that generally doesn't cover out-of-network care, such as an HMO, might deny a surprise bill entirely or plans might pay a portion of the bill but leave the patient liable for balanced billing, the difference between the undiscounted fee charged by the out-of-network provider and the amount reimbursed by the private health plan. Balanced billing on surprise medical bills have been known to reach hundreds or even thousands of dollars to patients. This act does not apply to public programs such as Medicare and Medicaid as they prohibit balanced billing. The No Surprises Act also tries to increase increase transparency for all patients to better understand their cost-sharing liability ahead of time before a health care service is delivered. In emergency situations, this is going to be a challenge for providers and hospital ER departments because under the Act, the the medical facility or provider must provide a good-faith estimate of cost and cost-sharing prior to services being rendered, and it must identify whether the provider's Furnishing the items or services is in-network, and if not, how to find in-network providers. In an emergency situation, this is typically done after the fact, especially if the patient is not physically able to participate in financial discussions when admitted to the hospital on an emergent basis. Patients will be protected from surprise medical bills from emergency services from the point of evaluation and treatment until they are stabilized and can consent to being transferred to an in-network facility. 
protections will apply whether the emergency services are received at an out-of-network facility, including any facility fees, or provided by an out-of-network emergency physician or other provider. No Surprises Act will also extend to air ambulances. They have a history of sending inflated surprise medical bills to patients with critical medical situations. On the non-emergency side, patients will also be protected from surprise medical bills for services provided at an in-network facility by an out-of-network provider. An example would be a patient might receive a surprise bill from a non-emergency out-of-network provider that provides ancillary services or specialty services needing to respond to unexpected complications during surgery, for example, such as those delivered by a general surgeon. Here, the No Surprises Act allows for some voluntary exceptions to surprise medical bill protections, but only if a patient knowingly and voluntarily agrees to use an out-of-network provider, because the reasoning goes, the additional cost is no longer a surprise to the patient. And also make sure that your patients are aware that this act does not protect patients who have high deductible plans through either ACA or an exchange program, as this is not considered a surprise under the act. The act also calls for providers and insurance plans to work out any disputed reimbursements and keep the patient out of the process when there is an outstanding bill. The act establishes a process for resolving payment disputes through an independent disputes resolution or an IDR. Providers and healthcare plans are required to negotiate payments amounts for at least 30 days prior to seeking resolution through that IDR. States will be primarily responsible for enforcement of the Surprise Act, with the federal government maintaining oversight as a fallback enforcer. The act stated that by July 1, 2021, the Secretary of Health and Human Services is required to establish a complaint process for violations of surprise billing protections by healthcare providers and facilities for consumers. All of these new policies are implemented, or as these new policies are implemented, compliance-related issues will likely create new costs for providers and healthcare plans. Providers will need to implement new procedures and systems to track payment negotiation efforts in order to preserve arbitration rights. The establishment of a reliable compliance program is essential to receiving fair payment for services rendered and not leaving money on the table. Erica, back to you. Thank you, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and award-winning podcaster, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Terry. And you can read Terry's article in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. Today, Susan Gatehouse returns to report on why it's time to hit the reset button on revenue integrity. And good morning, Susan. And Susan, why is now a good time to hit the reset button on revenue integrity? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to all. I feel like it's time to hit the reset button on life in general, but speaking specifically to revenue integrity, it's not a new concept, and it typically falls under the revenue cycle department. Because of continuous changes in healthcare, especially in the realm of technology, change often requires reevaluating department functions to ensure optimal performance. Let me mention a few functions in evaluating forward motion and revenue integrity. This is not exhaustive by any means, but some, some key points. Typically, revenue integrity acts as a resource for billing and charging questions from various service lines. Also, revenue integrity may pre- process pre- and post-bill edits, denials, uh, deal, deal with charge master issues, as well as charge master maintenance. Needless to say, its tentacles are far-reaching within an organization. It's also fair to say edits, denials, and other billing or charging issues can get lost in the abyss. For example, if an edit occurs and is returned to the originating department for resolution without a designated, knowledgeable individual 
individual responsible, a problematic claim may be held indefinitely. As you trend issues back to the originating department, it's not uncommon to discover a backlog. And I've seen this time and time again, specifically with lab and radiology, where edits or denials are forwarded back to those specific departments and lab radiology techs are expected to resolve them. Of course, that's not their their um, their daily knowledge per se. So we definitely want to make note of that, two areas that you would want to trend uh, denials or edits. Designated knowledgeable staff is key to the success of revenue integrity. Develop a team with the right skill set to act as a resource in answering billing, charging, or coding questions. Also, the skill set should include the ability to resolve edits, denials, and charging issues. And what I mean by resolve, have the ability to um, to have an open system where changes can be made and not just uh, tossing an edit or denial or charging issue back and forth from department to revenue integrity. It's also a really good question to ask, and I've, I've also seen this time and time again, is who's educating departments that are responsible for repetitive issues. Providing ongoing education is crucial. It's a crucial component component of revenue integrity. It's not uncommon to assign edits, denials, or charging issues to the originating department without providing education or knowledge for compliant resolution. Monitoring tracking the functions within revenue integrity are paramount. A few that you may want to monitor Number one are edits, whether they're pre-bill or post-bill. Track the number of accounts being stopped by edits to distinguish patterns causing delays in claims processing and payment. Identify payer requirements and the source of issues to implement automated resolutions and prevent repetitive edits. So there's a lot of conversation that happens with the Revenue Integrity Department and various service lines. Again, we want to move from transaction to transformational. Denials are also an area which I think are a headache to all of us. Um, tracking and trending claim denial patterns, medical necessity issues with certain providers, identifying issues with revenue codes and CPC code combinations. Monitoring includes not only dollar amounts but also denial percentages by payer. Also, resolved denials and unresolved denials. Trending in this area has proven to be difficult without a concrete workflow across service lines and also a concrete um, seat at the table in terms of revenue integrity and various service lines. So there's bi-directional conversation happening regarding denials and edits. Also, write-offs. It's vital to examine the who, what, and why when trending write-offs. Having structured revenue integrity and functions will proactively provide a layer of protection against compliance risk and missed revenue. If establishing or enhancing your revenue integrity uh, area seems costly, consider the fact that an effective revenue integrity department can recognize a significant amount of unclaimed revenue. This is also a number to track to realize the cost benefit of an established revenue integrity department. In today's complex competitive healthcare environment, there's no question focusing on revenue integrity is the best is in the best interest of any organization. So really asking yourself these questions in evaluating revenue integrity 
really will help you determine, do you need to hit the reset button? Tossing to you, Erica. Thank you. That was great advice, Susan. That was Susan Gatehouse, the founder and CEO for Axia Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Susan. And you can read Susan's reporting on revenue integrity in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Coming up next, the results of today's Talk to Tuesday listener survey, as well as a live update from the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. You're listening to Talk 10 Tuesday as a broadcast service of ICD-10 Monitor. If you code for interventional radiology procedures, you've probably struggled with issues like distinguishing between similar procedures or trying to decipher physician documentation. Many of your peers facing these challenges have found a unique solution, interventional radiology coding charts. These color-coded anatomical charts feature high-quality images. They provide a shortcut from physician intent to the correct CPT codes and charges for a broad spectrum of vascular and nonvascular IR procedures across all body systems. That leads to faster, more consistent capture of the full appropriate reimbursement. Now available, an exclusive limited-time offer of the IR coding charts, only $99. That's a savings of $98 off the regular price. Simply enter code EFIRST321 at checkout. Hurry, you must order by March 31st. Here now with the Talk Tuesday listener survey and a live update from the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting is Laurie Johnson. Good morning again, Laurie. Good morning, Chuck. And the results of the survey are 68% said the diagnosis portion is most important. 24% said that the procedures is the most important. And then we have 8% that said neither is important. So interesting results. During today's show, the computer-aided assessment and characterization software for head CT scan was presented. An NTAP has been requested for this new procedure. This technology is used to characterize Alberta Stroke Program early CT score or aspects and its regions of interest using CT imaging data, and the technology is used for strokes. So that's what I saw while we were doing Talk 10 this morning. So back to you, Erica. Thank you, Lori. Now it's time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Ron Hirsch forwarded me an article from February 24th entitled, Fauci Introduces New Acronym for Long COVID at White House Briefing. In it, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the White House COVID-19 response team's chief medical advisor, explains that the acronym PASC, that's P as in Peter, A as in Apple, S as in Sky, and C as in Charlie, is the term that has been coined to describe the post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection. The next day, an infectious disease doctor friend of mine posted on Facebook, long-haul COVID-19 is when infected individuals experience prolonged symptoms even after they are no longer shedding virus. Manifestations like powerful fatigue, gastrointestinal and pulmonary problems, and mental issues like brain fog, which is difficulty with concentration and focus, anxiety, depression, and insomnia abound in these unfortunate patients. Some studies estimate this occurs in 10 to 30% of COVID-19 patients. 
The duration of long COVID is, as yet, undetermined. The NIH is trying to study the phenomenon. But you can't monitor what you can't measure. We have to be able to identify patients who are experiencing this post-viral condition for epidemiological and research purposes. We need to know if there are comorbidities or demographic features which make PASC more likely. Will vaccination prevent this outcome? How can we surveil this? First, we do not have a code for long COVID, nor a dedicated code for sequela of COVID-19. The code we use to signify a sequela of COVID-19 is the generic B94.8 sequelae of other specified infectious and parasitic diseases. I have previously advised the use of Z86.16 personal history of COVID-19 along with B94.8 to give the detail that COVID-19 is the, quote, other specified infectious or parasitic disease, unquote, although this is not an AHA AHIMA-approved advice. One should also provide a code specifying which sequela manifestation the patient has. Long COVID-19, long-haul COVID, and PASC are synonyms for the same syndrome. It is heterogeneous with different presentations. Some persistent symptoms are easily documented and coded, like pulmonary fibrosis or myocarditis. But some of the manifestations are more nebulous. There are more, uh, many ways of referring to these other symptoms, such as chronic fatigue syndrome, known as CFS, or myalgic encephalomyelitis, referred to as ME. Providers will need to be coached to indicate the chronic fatigue as being post-viral, because the phrase chronic fatigue syndrome codes as R53.82 chronic fatigue unspecified, whereas post-viral chronic fatigue syndrome is coded with G93.3 post-viral fatigue syndrome. ME indexes to G93.3. Providers love jumping on the acronym bandwagon. We like categorizing things. We like naming them. Remember the havoc HFPEF and HFREF caused before we got dispensation to crosswalk them to diastolic and systolic heart failure? CFS and ME don't index anywhere in their abbreviated form. I can envision my clinical colleagues embracing the acronym PASC. If it corresponds to chronic fatigue or other mentation issues like depression, impaired concentration, or memory loss, and if it is from COVID-19, G93.3 is probably the optimal way to codify and capture it. Until you are compliantly permitted to make that indexing leap, you may need to query and educate your providers to give you verbiage that can get you there. An alternative could be to create an internal coding guideline which says that PASC, which is post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, is intended to indicate post-viral fatigue syndrome and, quote, in our facility should be coded with G93.3, close quote, or something like that. Have an official representative of the medical staff sign off on the policy with coding and CDI. Have them send out a memo to the clinicians. Another workaround could be to develop a macro which expands the acronym to some terminology which is indexable and codable until at the uh, coding um, maintenance, uh, the coordination maintenance committee meetings, we give you actual um, uh, new guidelines. 
Remember, the primary reason for documentation is clinical communication. We need to ensure that the coding accurately represents the scenario. It's not only for reimbursement. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. And that's going to be a wrap for our 452nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Fletcher, Susan Gatehouse, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, and as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And a programming note, next Tuesday we're going to begin a three-part series on outpatient CDI. And thank you for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.